students and others from outside IIM as well, and uh, if some other colleagues have joined or staff has joined, uh, good evening and welcome to all in this uh, webinar talk. Uh, those uh, who have been to IIMA, you know, and know about IIMA, uh, will vouch that IIMA has been an open space architecture, and I mean both brick and mortar one, and also importantly, free flow of ideas and thoughts. Uh, this philosophy is uh, reflective of the shloka in the very first mandala of Rigveda. It goes ano bhadraha kratvo yantu vishvataha. That is, let noble thoughts come to us from all directions. Uh, recently, I learned that Mr. Rajiv Malhotra has written a book on AI, the artificial intelligence, and that he has been a serious student of ancient Indian thought for a long, long time. So I felt there would be a connect between the ancient thought and AI, and hence I requested him to come as a guest speaker in my class. The reference to AI, of course, uh, reminded me of IMA's uh, Bridge Disa Center for Data Science and uh, Artificial Intelligence. And uh, thanks to co-chairs of the center, Ankur Sina and Aninda Chakravarti, both professors here, and they kindly agreed to host the talk jointly for my class and as well as for their center. And many of you may know Rajiv Mullatraji, uh, but risking repetition, let me introduce him. Uh, Rajiv Mullatra is the founder of the Princeton-based Infinity Foundation and chairperson of the Center for Indic Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. Uh, he studied physics at St. Stephen's College, Delhi, and later pursued computer science at Syracuse University. You know, I'll just make a quote from a Buddhist text, uh, Nikaya, uh, Digha Nikaya. The, uh, the Buddhist text, Digha Nikaya, states that if Gautam Buddha had not chosen the path of reform, renunciation, and enlightenment, he would have been a billionaire. Uh, you know, he was a rationalist, so he could have chosen either of them. Uh, among ordinary ones, too, there are always a few extraordinary ones. Mr. Malhotra was a successful entrepreneur of quite a few information technology and media firms, but then retired from business at the age of 44 to devote himself fully to the work of his foundation and the Indic thought. Uh, his foundations have given grants and funded courses, programs, centers, and visiting chairs, professorships at academic institutions such as Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, Columbia University, and few others. He's a prolific writer with many books to his credit on ancient Indian thought. Among others, <laughs> include Being Different, Indra's Net, Sanskrit Non-Translatables, and the latest book, as I mentioned earlier, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Sri Rajiv Malhotra. Mr. Malhotra, the floor is yours. You could take uh, your the, the way presentation you want to proceed. You can take Q&A probably at the end of your uh, talk. Uh, so the uh, floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Satish, for uh, inviting me. Uh, and you have a very fascinating course uh, on uh, ancient Indian thought and the modern political economy. So that's very interesting to me, uh, bringing the ancient and the modern together. So I'm delighted to be here. And I always love the opportunity to uh, in address bright young students, take their questions. Uh, as long as the questions are relevant to what we're talking about, I like the prov prov provocative questions, challenging questions, uh, agreements, disagreements, I can handle it all in the spirit of the open architecture that uh, Satish mentioned. So, uh, so let me just tell you a little bit uh, about the organization of my talk. Uh, so I'm going to, 
I'm going to first of all clarify the distinct the, the distinction between intelligence and consciousness because there's a lot of confusion and I will I will differentiate what is intelligence, what is consciousness, and how you can have one without the other, and and the, and their difference this is very important. And this idea of consciousness then links us to the Vedic tradition and our own spiritual heritage, whereas the intelligence uh, takes us to the modern AI, uh, the reductionist model of biology, intelligence, neuroscience, all that with algorithms and so forth. So I've straddled both these all my life. The consciousness part and uh, pursuit is my meditative practice and the study of all the consciousness movements that came out of India, uh, Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, all of them, and modern ones. Uh, and the, the other side of me, which is the intelligence AI algorithmic side, uh, is the computer scientist in me. Uh, so, And I'm also a physicist. I think in my background, I started out as a physicist. Uh, uh, in uh, uh, studying in St. Stephen's College, then went to do my PhD in physics. And later, I switched to computer science. That's a separate story. Uh, now, uh, after explaining the distinction between consciousness and intelligence, I'll go into each one a little bit. I will, uh, I'll describe what, is, what has been the consciousness movement. What does it want? How does, what is the future of humanity if they are successful? in creating a global consciousness through uh, raising your consciousness through, through meditation, these kind of things. And this started in India, but it spread all over the world. Buddhism played a large role in spreading it. Uh, in a lot of Indian gurus came. I'll explain all that. And then I will talk about the other side, the, uh, the intelligence side, the very material, material reductionist, biological, algorithmic side turned into uh, AI. And where is that going? Uh, I'll also talk about metaverse, uh, although that was not in my book, but I hinted at it. Uh, then after having clarified these, I'll go into a political economy. Uh, what are the political, economic, social type of impacts of both kinds of movements? And the fact that they are in mutual tension makes it even more interesting. So if you are a student of uh, political economy, you better understand these things because this is, going to, this is not some futurist thing. It may sound very futuristic, but these things are happening now and they are going to be a major fo force, a major industrial revolution based on all this stuff during this decade. So uh, I found, unfortunately, when I was writing my AI book, I found a total lack of appreciation on the part of economists in India. I approached some, some of the, I don't want to name, but some of the leading voices in economics and they really had nothing to do with, they said, I don't know about this AI business and all. I said, like, that's like saying, that's like on the, on the, at the dawn of the industrial revolution in England, imagine some economists saying, look, I don't care about industrial revolution. You know, I'm not a technocrat. The point is your, your life is changing. The industrial revolution changing the whole economic landscape and you have to be interested. So that's the state we are in right now with this new kind of a technology uh, the, the, this is a new industrial revolution and every economist, everybody in management, business has to know about these things. So let me start then. The first point is that consciousness is different from intelligence and I'll explain why. You know, in consciousness, I, as, as a conscious person, uh, it, 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 there is my first person, my second person and my third person consciousness. Uh, in, in, this also reflects in language. In every language, there is first-person speech, which means when I speak about myself, I am like this, I'm feeling like that, my mind is like this, 
I, I like this, I don't like it, uh, whatever. When, it's, when I'm talking about myself, that's first person speech. Second person is when I'm talking about you, me, like I'm talking right now to you. So I'm saying you, Satish, and uh, Satish is saying you, Rajiv, and I'm talking to the students. Uh, this direct interaction is second person. Third person is when I'm referring to things. I'm referring to the snow, to the uh, trees out here, to the weather, to concepts, to uh, you know notions, to uh, organization, material things. That's third person speech. Now, consciousness has all three aspects. But to be intelligent, you are faking the consciousness, conscious behavior. You're faking intelligent behavior. And the machine does not need to have the first person. The machine does not need to have selfhood. This is very important. You see, the, 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 a, being, a being has self. But an electron is not a being, has no beingness, has no self. But it's behaving in a very algorithmic way. Its behavior is modeled. It's behaving exactly like the algorithm says it should behave. So when you look at when you look at the, what it takes to be to have intelligent behavior, you do not need a conscious entity. Uh, a robot does not have to be conscious, but it can be extremely intelligent, more intelligent than the person. The reason I make a big issue out of this is a very a large number of popular speakers. In fact, I don't name, but uh, some very important Indians who are in computer science, who are in consciousness studies. You probably know them. Uh, they go around. They've been going around saying that uh, computer, the machines will never replace humans because they are unconscious, as if it requires consciousness to be intelligent, but it doesn't. So, uh, you know, you can have a drone which is not conscious, but it's replacing human behavior very nicely. You can have uh, robots that are, uh, you know, harvesting fruits and deciding when, when a particular item is ready for harvesting. Uh, you have intelligent uh, machines that are able to uh, look at uh, look at uh, editorials and figure out is this editorial biased not biased uh, they can understand your behavior uh, they can decide which ads are better for you what how to hack your mind they can that's all very intelligent stuff uh, the AI systems are psychologists they can understand you your behavior better than you know yourself maybe better than your spouse knows you because the the AI system has access to more data and it's learned from a bigger database of who you are. So intelligent behavior is there right now without having to be conscious. Uh, and this has nothing to do with general intelligence and general AI or limited AI. The point is that uh, even in its current limitations, AI can replace human beings in large number of capacities, you know, in a lot of capacities. On the other hand, it is also possible to be conscious and not be very intelligent. I mean, there are conscious entities that are quite dumb. There are conscious entities that are not that smart. They're conscious, they have a selfhood, but they're not able to behave in an intelligent way. So basically, uh, the essence is that uh, uh, it is possible to, have, uh, to be conscious without being intelligent, and it is possible to have intelligent behavior which is not conscious. In fact, unconscious intelligence, unconscious intelligence is a huge phenomenon. That's a recent discovery. This, this idea that you can train machines, you can train algorithms to replicate intelligence without being conscious at all is, is the big breakthrough. And that's the heart of this new industrial revolution. So let's talk about each of these a little bit. And then we'll talk, talk about political economy. You know, the conscious, let's talk about consciousness revolution before there was AI. Consciousness 
became a is an old topic in india in fact what we call what westerners call religion and all that is not that some god come and give us a, a you know sermon or give us commandments and all of that we have that also but the real genius of the indian tradition is the research in consciousness on oneself it's not a research in second person or third person about somebody else but the rishi is basically a laboratory of consciousness studies of the first person it's a first person empirical study studying how how my, myself is uh, you know how my mind works how thoughts come how breath comes how what i can do how i can control these things how i can raise my consciousness uh, so this business of uh, understanding consciousness is at the heart of the whole vedic tradition and i would say that that i would characterize the vedic tradition as a as a systematic study of consciousness that's basically what it is not really like a religion per se it's because all the discoveries are not rigveda doesn't say that i'm god and i'm telling you all these things it rigveda is not like that rigveda is rishis describing their experiences you know that's basically what it is upanishads are like that so this consciousness movement becomes global when a lot of gurus came over to the west and and uh, you know vivekananda had come but uh, and there was some uh, you know meditation started and all that but not on a very massive scale until maharishi mahesh yogi who comes here in the 60s starts a revolution of consciousness uh, through meditation where literally millions of americans and europeans per year are being initiated and practicing this on a regular basis and it becomes a huge phenomena buddhists come buddhism also brings its own uh, meditation techniques so these different sort of uh, uh, guru movements buddhist movements bring consciousness into the western world and from the western world it spreads all over becomes a a global phenomena so this this is a this is this is you know everything from deepak chopra type people to uh, oprah and all, everybody is into the consciousness movement so there's no there's no uh, dearth of such movements now is nothing very special or esoteric about it uh, and and uh, uh, there are people who related to a particular religion so there is uh, consciousness movements within christianity also judaism and so on and then there are people who are neuroscientists who want to keep it secular who want to study consciousness as a as a kind of a, a material process or secular process so all that throughout the spectrum of uh metaphysical ideology uh, you have this consciousness movement now the, per- the what this consciousness movement is evolving towards or regardless of your ideology is that there is a, something called a collective consciousness and then there is this rajiv's consciousness satish's consciousness and so on but you know my purpose is to rise beyond rise above this narrow ego and selfhood of me my body and tap into this collective consciousness experience the collective consciousness in fact gradually gradually become less and less of the narrow individual and more and more a collective consciousness and the idea the future vision of society is that as more and more people join this collective consciousness movement there will be they will this, this will transform humanity and this is what uh, sri arbindo's whole message was this idea that we have to all of us all humanity has to uh, go to a higher level and uh, a supramental state a superhuman being a superconscious entity will emerge and this superhuman entity will be of a whole different kind of a, almost like a different species you know 
uh, uh, we'll have conscious uh, capabilities that we humans don't have. We can't even imagine. The point I was making was that the consciousness movement uh, is one kind of movement. And then I'll talk about the intelligence movement, which is a different kind of movement, both trying to capture the future of humanity. The consciousness movement, relying on meditation, relying on spirituality, Vedic techniques, Buddhist techniques, has gone all over the world. Uh, it has a religious dimension to it. It has a secular dimension to it. A lot of science is being, a lot of scientific studies on the effects of meditation going on. So the idea of this is that uh, uh, nature, nature evolved its intelligence consciously. Nature evolved its, con its intelligence consciously, whereas AI machines are evolving their intelligence unconsciously. Machines are not conscious. They're unconscious entities becoming smarter and smarter because the algorithms are being trained uh, with big data and machine learning techniques that don't require the machine to be conscious. Whereas nature doesn't work like that. Nature, you know, every little thing from a pathogen which is evolving to an insect in whatever, you know, all the way to humans are conscious entities that are evolving. Okay, so all the evolution, the inanimate, unconscious entities in nature are not evolving. So an electron has not evolved. An electron is not evolved over the last billions of years, according to physics. Okay, but the ant has, the plant has, the living things have are evolving. So life is needed, conscious behavior, consciousness is needed for evolution in nature. This is a very big statement I'm making, that natural evolution is conscious. And artificial intelligence gives you an alternative way to evolve intelligence, evolved intelligence through machine learning without being conscious. This is a very big difference that you must understand. It's a huge statement. You can read my book, uh, chapter five of my book, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power. A lot of like 60, 70 page uh, treatment on just this whole issue and what its implications are. Now, the there are ethical dimensions because if you are, if you are, if if, if humanity is moving forward consciously to conscious evolution, then we are be becoming better and better. We are becoming more and more conscious as we become intelligent. We're not just becoming intelligent, but unconsciously, in which case we, should all, we could also be vicious and unethical and immoral because our consciousness has not become any better. Uh, on the other hand, now let's talk about biological, bi material evolution, material evolution. Material evolution which is what AI is based on, looks at, looks at a system as a reductionist mechanical system and turns it into laws, which are mechanical. And reductionism means you take a system, you break it into parts and study those parts. And then you take each part and break it into further parts and study them. And you keep doing that until you come down to fundamental particles, physics, and so on. And so this reductionist model of a human being you break the human into organs and you study each organ and keep doing this. Uh, you study the brain, you break it down into different faculties in the brain. So the reductionist model of intelligence, it does not require any consciousness in it. And it has been exceedingly successful thanks to AI. Okay. And, and it says that uh, unconscious entities can keep evolving their intelligence and become smarter than conscious entities. This is very strange. It's outsmarting nature, in a sense, that nature evolved over a long time consciously, but this uh, ultimate uh, uh, ultimate product of nature, the human being, 
in terms of intelligence can be outsmarted by robots that are unconscious. This is, and and that, that is an, a very unnatural kind of evolution, which is unconscious evolution. So I want you to understand these points uh, very carefully. Now, the my book has this whole thing called being versus algorithm that captures this. Being is the being is itself is conscious. Algorithm is just a mechanical thing, a recipe. Okay, that you don't need a conscious entity to implement it. And I'll be happy to take questions on this later on when I'm done. Uh, now. Having established these two domains, the consciousness evolution domain and the intelligence evolution domain as two distinct domains, I'll now talk about how they're competing, how the artificial intelligence is hacking into the consciousness. It is reducing the person's own selfhood because he's losing his agency. Now what is, what is happening is you model the behavior of a person Okay, you model the behavior of a person uh, based on his second person interactions. You don't understand his selfhood because that's first person and you don't know, but you know how he's behaving and his third person, his views, what he buys, you know, all, all kind of things that he, all the footprints he leaves uh, there on social media and uh, various other places. You take all this big data and you model, uh, you build a behavioral model of that person at an individual level, at a community level. This is, of course, uh, very valuable because you can advertise and make the guy buy things, increase the probability that he'll buy certain products rather than other products. But this results in a loss of agency. In other words, I'm no longer making free choices where to go, what movies to buy. I think I'm making free choices, but I'm being biased because what they're feeding me is already prejudiced based on their model, based on their agenda, what will make more money for them. So I may think I'm totally free. You know, I'm making this choice. I've watched this movie. I'm going to, uh, whom I'm going to date, whom I'm going to marry, who, uh, which holiday I'm going to go to, what political party, all that is being hacked. All that is being biased because the algorithms know how to manipulate me. So the loss of, there is a loss of agency. There's a loss of kind of a free will. Uh, I'm going more and more on autopilot. I'm, I'm letting, letting Google decide for me. I'm letting, you know, YouTube. I'm letting, uh, uh, you know, Netflix decide for me. So the, as I go in default mode more and more, I'm losing agency. Okay. So I call this moronization of the masses. Moronization of the masses. Means that people are becoming morons. They don't need to think too much. You can think for them. And you win their trust that, listen, Google must be right. So you don't even need to study now. Why you need to go to, uh, you know, IIM or go learn math or whatever. I mean, whatever decisions have to be made, some algorithm will decide. Uh, so with algorithms doing management, economics, investments, uh, you know, all kind of stuff, the, the point is that you don't need people to make that much decision making. So there's a loss of agency. There's a modernization, dumbing down, dumbing down. Now, what this is doing to human beings is reducing their attention span. In the consciousness movement, the yogi was very proud that he can have attention for hours. He can be fixed and have a good amount of concentration for hours and, you, in, and get insights. Insights in a higher state of consciousness in silence. He could get deep insights. And those were the breakthroughs that Rishis made. 
But now it is the other way around. Now attention span is shorter and shorter. Person wants to jump here, jump there, click this, go there, click this, go there. And the smaller and smaller slices of attention can be marketed and sold. So you don't have to sell a 15-minute ad and 15-second ad anymore. You can sell a two-second attention span, enough to go somewhere and click, and that's worth some money to uh, you know from an advertiser. So attention divided into smaller units can generate more money. And so there is an incentive to help to make people reduce their attention span, become more jumpy here and there. And then this, uh, this shortened attention span can be gratified. There's gratification. It gives you what you need. It, it gives you a dose of uh, you know, good, good hormone in the brain by satisfying you. Whether the person needs pornography, whether he needs some political message, whether he needs a scandal, whether he needs a sixer in cricket, whatever it is, the system knows what you would like. And the system can feed you those kind of uh, things, that kind of. So content is driven to gratify you and at the same time, drive your behavior in a way that the advertiser will benefit. So there is the advertiser's agenda. And we also know what you as an individual will like. And so the system optimizes that. This makes the individual more extroverted rather than introverted. Introverted is more first-person consciousness. Extroverted, the more you're extroverted and all your satisfaction and gratification and your attention is going out, you're actually going away from meditation because meditation is to go inside. Uh, observe yourself, observe your mind, observe your breath, have a mantra, or have some silence inside. All meditation systems are introverted and all AI systems are extroverted. So the, there is, this, is the, this is the competition between being, which is selfhood, versus algorithm, which is externally driven. Now, this is what I've called hijacking of selfhood. Hijack, the selfhood gets hijacked because of the technology. Now, what are the, what are the, the uh, implications of all this? You know, this is actually going even further. Now there are, they're talking about brain implants, brain implants. So you won't even need to look outside to the phone for all of this. Uh, so so uh, th this is uh, the brain implants where the, your brain will have some, in, some stuff that can not only measure what you are going to be thinking. Are you going to get violent? Are you a rapist who's likely to do something wrong? in which case it can alert, maybe it can stop you. Uh, are you. Are you getting joy, in which case it can feed you more? Are you getting bored, in which case it can switch channels? So uh, this uh, implants are partly for monitoring and measuring what's going on, and partly for intervention and changing what's going on. So both it is for reading and also for uh, impacting in interventions. Th these implants are coming in a very serious way. Uh, they will come first as medical to solve medical problems, mental health problems, uh, to solve behavior problems like violence. Uh, but then they'll also be there for entertainment. People will have fun. They'll, they'll have sexual experiences. They'll have a fantasy that they are flying somewhere. They're jumping from an airplane or they're on top of Mount Everest. So they'll be able to have more of that. And the metaverse initially will be external external, you know, goggles, uh, eventually more and more internal inside. Uh, and in any case, it will be a kind of a make made up world 
a made up metaverse where you exist rather than the physical world you'll be in this metaverse and in the metaverse there'll be real estate you're buying selling you're dating somebody you have an avatar and they have an avatar you're dating this avatar of somebody that person may not even be a real person and you know you have a whole life you have a bank account you have investments so there's a whole parallel life there's a parallel existence and in that parallel existence you are there and maybe that's gratifying a large part of what you cannot gratify in your physical life so it's kind of a it's a double your double is enjoying what you cannot uh, enjoy uh, uh, you know you cannot enjoy uh, uh, for for uh, in the real life so uh, this is this is uh, a sort of a uh, the direction in which things are going now what is the implication of this politically economically you know socially let's talk about that because that is where i want to discuss uh, the the power is shifting and concentrating in the hands of a few googles and others like that it's not just google i give that as an example the whole googleization of the world means you're becoming more and more dependent on them google says it must be right you don't need to do anything they'll tell you what to do but all the social media are like that and all these ai based uh, platforms are like that the metaverse is like that so this is sort of like the new east india company which was exceedingly powerful as a private company you know you think that a planned economy is official definition of a planned economy is that it is government planned but what about a artificial intelligence driven planned economy which is controlled by private sector by some private big uh, oligarchs eastia company was a privately run economy the largest empire in the world largest economy in the world controlled by the eastia company a private company and it went on from the year 1600 when it was created till the year to uh, 1857 when they disbanded it in 1858 so it lived for 258 years such a huge lifespan and the share of global economy that it had was unprecedented even today there's no company i mean if you collapse the top 10 companies of the world you will not have the same market share of the world economy as the eastia company did so that kind of a thing has happened before and i'm predicting that it's happening again it's happening again because there are there are uh, uh, the, these kind of companies exist beyond natural national boundaries beyond uh, beyond jurisdictions uh, they and, and this ai in the cloud and this intelligence driving the economies driving the behavior of people driving voting patterns driving violence communal violence making this community fight that community uh, this is why the chinese complained that in hong kong a lot of the a lot of the intervention of creating these riots were from overseas and so they and this is what uh, russia says uh, and but russia is doing the same thing to the us they're, they're hacking you know into these networks to try and intervene so this business of uh, kind of cyber warfare uh, uh, you know uh, it, it, it has both governments involved but also private sector uh, you know so in the case of china it's the government which is the big brother but in the case of united states it's partly the government also but also a huge private sector involved in these kind of things uh, the this is think of it like another industrial revolution uh, the previous industrial revolution in england uh, resulted in britain and france becoming the most powerful places in the world previously but england was not very powerful uh, and the east india company was just a small trading company uh, but the industrial revolution gave it the scale gave it the money uh, to become so powerful 
uh, and, and, and create this big empire and rule over the world. They became a colonial power only because of the Industrial Revolution. If there had been no Industrial Revolution, they would not have been able to become such a great uh, empire. Today, the same thing is happening with United States and China, like uh, England and France. England and France were fighting each other, and they were also fighting over colonies. Uh, so right now, USA and China are fighting each other, and they're fighting for market share over colonies. China has got a lot of Africa, you know, and U.S. is not happy about it. The U.S. has got certain places where it's got influence. China has got Pakistan, like that. So like Britain and France carving out the world, you know, and then Dutch and all these other people also had East India companies. Uh, same way Britain, I mean, today it's USA and China competing for the new industrial revolution, world power, and so forth. And like industrial revolution created haves and have-nots within a country. I mean, in England, they were the rich became richer. The poor were just factory workers. Similarly, in India, uh, when, whenever the, whenever the industrial, industrialization happened, uh, some people became very big industrialists and poor are becoming poorer. So artificial intelligence and all this robotics and uh, quantum computing and semiconductors and drones and this whole new economy is going to create a concentration of power because you need, you know, fewer people can control a lot. A small number of people through this big, gigantic intelligent machinery system can control massive economies and can control, uh, you know, people on, a, on an unprecedented scale. So what does it mean? What will, what will be the result when uh, the human value is less in terms of the economic requirement. Uh, yes, a few people uh, in Bangalore will become very rich because they will start these companies. Uh, but that's like 0.01% of the population will be into this revolution as uh, innovators and people who own the equity. And uh, you know, some people become big entrepreneurs, big managers, and they'll do very well. But I'm talking about the masses because if the masses become poorer, and disenfranchised, there'll be social upheaval. There will be violence. So you cannot ignore that. I mean, even if you are not morally and ethically driven, which is a bad idea, you should be morally and ethically involved and concerned and have compassion. But even if you didn't, you have to, even from a purely selfish point of view, you have to look at what's this implication when society becomes so disrupted. When, because, you know, uh, we are, the population is growing, the world population. Natural resources are not growing. Yes, there is more science and technology. We can increase food production. We can do all that. That's correct. Technology also has that benefit. But the benefits that are coming through technology are not evenly distributed. They're concentrated. Some people are becoming, there are many people now worth over 100 billion. And I predict that uh, by 2030, there will be at least one trillionaire, trillionaire, worth a trillion dollars, maybe even sooner. So, you know, you're seeing that happening. And at the same time, unprecedented number of people are below the poverty line, you know, in Africa, large part of India, many other places. So what we are seeing is uh, a, a, a clash, a crash of civilization. This is not a clash, but a crash of civilization. I use the term crash of civilization in my book. I have a whole section on what I mean by crash of civilization. And in essence, what I mean is that civilization as we know it will become highly mechanized, highly materialistic, 
concentration of power, big egos, and civilizational values and ethos and ethics and morality may not be there anymore. Uh, and your al the algorithm will be able to even manipulate you and say, okay, you're actually happier like this. You're happier. You're happier. You don't need to have all that freedom. freedom. Why you need all that? Because we're giving you enough Netflix and enough, enough uh, uh, you know, good time gratification. And so you're okay. A lot of people will go for that. So I, I, uh, I have this issue that uh, this new, new technology, making things more and more intelligent, but not higher consciousness is a problem. Uh, nature has uh, evolved intelligence, but also brought more consciousness. So there's more responsibility in ethics. But now this unnatural, unconscious evolution of intelligence is kind of uh, uh, disconnected from consciousness. Uh, and so intelligence without consciousness can be dangerous. That's, that's the point I'm making. Before I conclude and take a Q&A, I, uh, I want to talk about India. Where is India? Because obviously, you must be concerned about that. I'm very concerned that India did not utilize its brains wisely the way China did to create our own technology. We rented the brains. Uh, you know, India renting this outsourcing, so many lakhs or crores, whatever people are rented out. Everybody is a tech coolie working for some company in the, U in the West. Whether you are a Satya Nadella, or, you know, you are just an employee. It's not your company. The company belongs to the Americans. You are an employee. You may be worth a lot of money or you may be just a junior fellow. Uh, India has taken its brains and outsourced them. Labor arbitrage, wage arbitrage. This is a very quick, easy way to make money, but you don't end up owning intellectual property. You, you're still dependent. Whereas China started as wage arbitrage in factories. They had cheap factories, cheap labor, but they took that profit and reinvested it in their own research to go up the value chain. So they started improving manufacturing, engineering. And so, you know, the clients were happy that their Chinese are adding value, but the, the American clients didn't realize that the Chinese got their own agenda. As they learned to make the factories smarter, more efficient, okay, they could take more and more share of manufacturing away from the US. Uh, and, and their value added was such that they can create their own products. They don't, they don't need American, pro uh, they're not just working for the Americans, they're working for themselves because now their products are on the world market, which is what you see all over the world. All the flood of Chinese goods that you see in India are basically that the result of making those very same goods for the Americans, learning how to do it and then making their own goods. In, in, in the case of uh, technology, India didn't do that. India didn't say that we learn how to make apps for the client and then we, we will have our own apps. We will have out of the top 100 apps, 50 of them will be Indian. India didn't do that. India didn't say that we'll, we'll take all this surplus money that uh, people are making from labor arbitrage and we invest in quantum computing, in solar power, in robotics, in drones. We didn't do that. So China made some big bets 10 years ago, 15 years ago on the futurist technologies and in all of them, they're either number one or number two. Solar energy, number one. Robotics, number one. Drones, number one. In terms of, you know, the market share and number of such entities in the number installed base. In terms of artificial intelligence, number one, number two, close competition between US and China, depending on which area of artificial intelligence. Quantum computing, China has actually beaten 
uh, Google and or any any American company in certain benchmarks in achieving quantum computing. So you can you can argue where it's one number one, where it's number two, but China is not number four or five. It's uh, really at the top, and it's determined to be number one in every single thing. Now that's very dangerous for India because they're not going to spare India. They're not going to spare it, and India is going to become more and more dependent on or somebody else to help us out, survival. So that means go and hug the Americans, but Americans will extract their price out of it. And so India is in a. India has blundered by becoming what I call Vishwa Kuli. This Vishwa Guru is a, just a nice thought. But in, in, act, in actual practice, India is behaving more like Vishwakuli because it's, it's doing Kuli work, for, uh, which is called outsourcing. Uh, rather than taking the same brains and saying, okay, now let's develop our, our own technologies and then we license the technology, rather than licensing the brains, we license the technology. Rather than doing that, the businessmen decided they'll take the easy way out, become billionaires. And I consider the Indian billionaires not responsible. I mean, just because they're very rich and they can live a good lifestyle and a lot of glitter and fanfare doesn't mean that they've actually done nation building. Yes, they've created a middle class. It's very true. They've created a middle class and they've created a lot of jobs and a lot of people, millions of people are now not uh, lower middle class, they're kind of middle middle class. That is true. But when you're, when you're doing a race with China, you have to see that China is doing even better. China has not only really created middle class, but they've also created ownership of technology. India didn't do that. So, uh, the, the problem that India faces now is that this uh, digitized, artificial intelligence-driven human beings can be remote controlled from far away. Uh, people sitting far away have knowledge of the Indian mind, access to the Indian mind, can create riots, can create revolutions, can create violence, like we saw in uh, various events in India that happened in the last year or two. Some of them were instigated from overseas by social media. And as the algorithms become smarter, they know which community likes what, what are their hot buttons, what kind of fake news you can put in to uh, get them angry. As they become smarter and smarter at doing that, uh, they've also become more powerful. So uh, I, have a, I wrote a book called Breaking India, which talked about how internal divisiveness instigated by foreign nexuses is actually tearing India apart. This became a, it was launched by uh, Ajit Doval, who's now the national security advisor. He was at Vivekananda International Foundation. He launched this book. And he said that, you know, this is, the, this is what every Indian should understand. And it'll take 10, 20 years for people to understand the, the, the vision in this book and how serious it is. So the book was read by a lot of people and created a whole lot of, uh, movements to make Indians more self-conscious about these threats and the foreign NGOs and so on. Now I'm finishing up uh, a book which will be Breaking India 2.0 because now the Breaking India forces are far more intelligent, far and many, many more Indians involved. Many Indians are uh, uh, working on behalf of these new kind of foreign forces. Uh, and this book will come out uh, before by, by mid-year, I, I would say this, this year. So I will wrap up now. Uh, I've talked about consciousness. Uh, I've talked about intelligence without consciousness. Uh, the dis distinction between the two, the pros and cons, what happens if you have ev evolution of intelligence but not conscious, what happens? Then I've talked about the implications to the, so to the political economy of India, of the world, 
and then brought it down to what are some of the implications and challenges that India faces. So thank you very much for listening. So Satish, we can take questions now. So uh, you can you can uh, uh, you can decide, Satish, how you want uh, uh, people to take questions. Give me questions. I have a question, Rajiji. Yes. Yes. Uh, Rajendra Paul from Seattle. Um, a wonderful, uh, fine discrimination on consciousness and intelligence. The first time, in fact, I'm hearing this type of uh, this penetrating yes. and uh, analysis. Uh, so my question, uh, some of this comes up in the Hindu University of America classes. And my question in this is this intelligence by machines and corporations uh, is in a corporate dharma. There yes, is yes. an implicit um, profit-driven, exploitative mindset similar to East India Company, uh, perhaps even on a larger scale. So yes, it's, yes. It, it, it's a dharma is corporate dharma yes, and yes. Uh, its intelligence is uh, laukika only. No, no alaukika in it. Right, right. absolutely. The difference between consciousness and intelligence. Uh, yes. Another way of saying the same thing. Yes. yes. So the, the question I have is... Uh, corporate dharma versus sanatan dharma, laukika right, right. versus laukika and alaukika. So right, right. Uh, this uh, sanatan aspect comes from alaukika, right, right. basically. Right, and right, so right, right. The, the ekatmata, paramatma, parmeshwar, all these concepts are in the uh, this uh, uh, avatar, the whole concept of sanatan dharma. So it seems that there is a clear line between the um, AI world and the, the, the corporate dharma in the corporate dharma versus the uh, consciousness in the Sanatan dharma. However, in the Vyavarika or Laukika world, this is a very powerful way to generate wealth. It's the... the I did a comparison between uh, Vedic Ashtadashvidya and University of Washington. And the primary thing that stands out is the science, technology, and industry, which is the driver of the wealth creation model in the Lokika world. Yeah. So, so anyway, so all of this and much more. My book is 500-page book. I can't sort of summarize everything. But if you read the first three, four chapters till chapter five, uh, you will get all of this discussed, the Lokika, the, you know, I'm even talking about that how dharma can be applied, how dharma can be applied uh, in this space also, how we can how we can be materialistic in a dharmic way. I've talked about it in my book, so you can read all that. And I've also done a very large critique of uh, what is wrong with Indian policy, how they have created Google Devata and Facebook Devata, and they, they've created these devatas. These are the devatas that everybody wants to search engine optimization is to keep this devata happy so that he'll give me more retweets. You know, we have, we have, we have created these corp digital corporate entities as sort of the giants and the devatas of the, uh, right now in our lives. And India and Indian policy, government policy, industrial policy has actually 
ruined all this. And I also fought the gurus because with the exception of one guru from Ramakrishna Mission in New York who wanted to learn. He didn't know anything about AI. He said, I know nothing, but teach me. So, Swami Savrapriyanand. So I spent a lot of time. We explained him and he read my book and all. And now he's going around talking about all these things. But other than that, none of the gurus really seem to understand the gravity of this issue. I mean, they are confused. So, you know, we do not have a leadership, whether it's government, whether it's industry, whether it's gurus, and certainly not whether in, in the academic world, that really understanding the gravity of where India is. And I feel that India, India could end up in bad shape, regardless of how much infrastructure we're building and GDP we have and all that. The point is that this technology we're talking about is leapfrogging ahead in such a, it's such a galloping way that it can it can uh, cause a lot of harm to the average Indian. The billionaire Indian or the multi-millionaire Indian will be in good shape. I have no doubt about it. I'm talking about the Aam Admi. I'm talking about the tens of crores who are not going to jump on the AI bandwagon. Where will they go? That's my concern. So there are many more hands. Let's take some more questions from somebody else, please. Um, hello, sir. Um, I'm Abhishek. I'm a PhD student here uh, in the economics department at uh, IMA. Uh, first of all, it's it's uh, it's my honor to be a part of this talk uh, that Professor Satish has arranged uh, so that we could meet you. Uh, sir, my question is mostly to do uh, from the perspective of a management and an economic student. Now, uh, I just, and I hope I describe it properly. Uh, so I wanted to understand what do you feel could be the role of Indian students uh, in enabling an Indian viewpoint towards the West? And I got uh, I got a thought about this question uh, because I was reading. I, I actually, I've read. I, I'm kind of rereading your book on uh, being different, and uh, that, that I took this uh, question from the very tagline that is available on the cover. Now, uh, my my idea is that uh, uh, how to break out of this sort of quote unquote trap of force fitting certain management theories. Uh, or certain economic theories which were uh, which are kind of perceived to be universal today but they were created from some other perspective and we maybe end up force fitting it into the indian context because i have worked in the industry for 5 years and i felt that uh, we end up force fitting a lot of these uh, management theories into the indian context and they do not work so uh, my, i just got curious uh, while working that has the time passed for Indians to do something about creating a new paradigm of say management that uh, is India centric and that maybe the West could seek to emulate uh, from us. See, the thing is this, this is why I quit the, my job, my life as an industrialist 40, 50 years, 40 years 30, 35 years ago, when I was around early forties to spend all my life doing this because I, and I expected many more people will join me, but they didn't. People, uh, people are busy in their own, uh, you know, pursuits and hardly any traction to come and join uh, join in this. A uh, lot of lip service, a lot of people go and give a talk here and become famous and get some reward here and there, but not serious heavy work, which is needed. Now, this business of an Indian approach to wealth creation and management and, you know, companies and businesses. After all, India was a very flourishing economy. Uh, we can't say that we were useless in the Lokika world. We were very thriving. We were really materially also very well off. So that how to reignite that in our own way, in our own context, rather than copying somebody else's framework where we'll always be second class. This is a very important project. And I have so much to say, so much to write 
uh, if you are interested, uh, we can discuss details on this later. But I feel the following: you cannot export unless you consume it, unless you practice it yourself. You cannot you cannot say that uh, how do we teach the world about our great system if we are not practicing it ourselves. So first, you know, first you have to first you have to Indianize the Indians. First, you have to Indianize the Indians before you can export it. And I, I have done some interaction, a lot of interaction with people at Niti Aayog and people in uh, uh, some of these big uh, corporate people in India. And I don't see them. I, I, they just do lip service and maybe their advertising will show some village lady, you know, you know, some Indian dance going on. That is all pop culture. I'm not talking about that. That's superficial. I'm talking about the real ideas and concepts of wealth creation, management, team building, intergenerational, how you pass it on, how you think futuristic, you know, because we've had all that. We've had R&D in India. Universities as an engine driving R&D where the teachers would bring in the kids of the rulers and the business people, educate them, and these people would go back and uh, create the next generation economy. You know, we've had that sort of a thing. And... Uh, so this all got dismantled. It's not just British colonial colonialism started thousands of years ago in India. Uh, and so how to bring all that back together should be a major enterprise. But for, I will tell you for 30 years I've tried. Uh, people do lip service. They just get enough one-liners uh, here and there from a talk I've given. Then they'll go and give their own talk and start a YouTube or, uh, you know, everybody's into quick fame. Uh, short short attention span, quick results. But what you are talking about is a deep project. It is a project that is multi-year, requires a lot of people, some resources. I don't know of a single think tank working on it. That's the problem. After having talked about it for so many years, I have not been able to get a single think tank to really take it up as a multi-year project. They will take it up as a conference, as a seminar, and then move on to the next topic. But this requires more serious effort. I see that there is a. Uh, there are some more questions I keep seeing. So somebody has to allow them to come and ask their question. Uh, yes, sir. I have a question here. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Rajiv, sir. It was a very enlightening uh, session we had. Uh, this is my first session I ever attended AI. Uh, my question to you is that is AI revolution going to put behind human consciousness in future? I mean, are we going to lose jobs or this AI is going to take toll on us and not perform uh, well in the organization and uh, may we fall behind, you know, competing this AI? Uh... That's a very good question. That's a very, very good question. And, you know, if you look at my artificial intelligence and the future of power, I talk about five battlegrounds. One of the battlegrounds is jobs. That's one of my backgrounds in this book. Uh, and I'm talking about exactly what sort of jobs are vulnerable, why they're vulnerable, what you can do about it, how you can skill yourself and get ahead. So, you know, the thing is that uh, the old computer revolution got rid of repetitious work, but knowledge work still you needed smart people to do knowledge work. Now, artificial intelligence is going after the brains, the knowledge, the intelligence. Uh, you know, so a lot of... Uh, a uh, lot of jobs that are highly paid jobs, not just blue-collar factory jobs that robots can do, but even knowledge work uh, AI is able to do. And this is going to become more and more so. Not only AI, but AI owned by foreigners. 
AI, AI owned by foreign companies. AI people sitting somewhere else will just manage a project, a process. And the role of the Indian industrialist becoming more like a zamindar trying to ca ca capture uh, Indian Indian people and Indian resources and uh, license it and sell it off to the foreigner. So, uh, like in the British days, East India Company days, you know, the Indian zamindars were doing local work, all the last mile dirty work uh, for the British. And now it is the Indian corporate sector is in some ways, a few people will become very rich and billionaires and we we'll, we'll think we're all doing very well, but that is them individually in their personal capacity, they'll do so well. As far as the masses are concerned, I would say the Indians are being sold out. The Indian masses are being sold out in the sense we are becoming more and more dependent on foreign uh, technology uh, and more and more of the equity, more and more of the equity of Sensex uh, is owned uh, uh, overseas. You look at what percent of Sensex uh, you know, there's the promoters own a large part. That means a few families are very wealthy. Okay. Uh, then what is owned by the public? How much of that uh, is owned by the Indian public and how much of that is owned by foreign, pe foreign people? Uh, you will find that the foreign share is going up uh, quite a lot. And so who really owns this great economy? Okay, we have an economy, but we are becoming employees. Like East India Company can make us employees. Okay. Now we can make employ we can become employees of these uh, Indian companies, but you know you take a look at Infosys. Who owns Infosys? Infosys is not majority owned by Indian shareholders. If you take the uh, the the promoters on one side, and then you look at all the other equity, it is not owned mostly by Indians. Okay, so uh, similarly, many other companies are uh, of that kind. I think that uh, on many levels from owning of equity on, then owning of actual uh, technology and uh, patents and so on, uh, India is in the Indian masses and workers are vulnerable. And with automation, there's going to be no empathy and sympathy, no ethics on what will happen to them. So this is the job of the gurus to wag their finger. They're not doing it. This is the job of the uh, government people. This is a job of honest and ethical industrialists. And so this is what I'm doing through my books to bring awareness to all this. So people like young people like you are concerned and talking about it. Thank you very much. I have two questions. One is that, you know, you were speaking uh, about uh, consciousness. We hear a new term, mindfulness, and uh, I don't understand what is uh, mindfulness. Is that a... Okay. Okay, so I'll tell you. So, so... There, there is a there is a Buddhist meditation called Vipassana. Vipassana, and Vipassana was brought to the Western world by Goenka uh, many decades ago, uh, and uh, one of his students was a doctor in Massachusetts called John Kabat Zen. John Kabat Zen acknowledges he learned uh, Vipassana, and he started looking at uh, uh, medical benefits of uh, Vipassana. And so he started filing for U.S. government grants, medical, you know, a lot of health uh, people got involved and they did not want uh, that this is all Buddhism because they thought that uh, it will not be secular, it will not be considered scientific. So he coined the term mindfulness to replace the word, to replace Vipassana. But mindfulness is not a new term. Mindfulness is basically Vipassana renamed as mindfulness so that Indian people will think it's some American invention. It is not, not an American invention. So you look at, you search John Kabat Zinn, or write to me, I'll send you the thing. J-O-N, John Kabat Zinn. John, John Kabat Zinn, 
is the founder of mindfulness and john kabat-zinn he was a student of goenka and learned vipassana from goenka so i've called this the u turn theory u turn theory i'm writing a book on it u turn theory is that indian knowledge comes back to india through, through the west it is it is taken by the west they like it they dismantle it they reconfigure it they they change the vocabulary they put it into their own framework and they make it unrecognizable as to where it came from and then they create create their own originality there are a lot of patents and a lot of original thought claimed by the mindfulness industry and lot of the medical science medical research that they have done on how it will treat this illness and that illness and that illness actually it's all indian meditation but it become americanized because of this u turn and then once it becomes americanized then they distance themselves from the indian sources they deny them they say oh i don't know anything about it i don't know what you're talking about that is a place full of caste and they have dowry and they're killing their women i don't want anything to do with that culture and then they distance themselves from the very same source from which they got their intellectual knowledge and then it this repackaged made in america thing gets re-exported to india and all the indian corporate bring those guys and give talks here and there oh wow this guy is talking emotional intelligence same thing emotional intelligence uh, the guy who came up with emotional intelligence at harvard was his phd he says that he was he wanted to bring transcendental meditation and study the effects of transcendental meditation on the human mind but his colleagues told him that this hindu or in, indian mumbo jumbo religion will not work you will, nobody will give you money and grant for it so his phd committee told him get rid of that so he coined new terms like emotional intelligence but this this and even maslow maslow's pyramid uh, if you look at sri aurobindo it came from sri aurobindo's he has written something called planes and parts of being sri aurobindo has a in in his book uh, life divine uh, one of the topics he is planes and parts of being which means that being has got many many planes and there are many parts here in the in these planes and these have to be all integrated through yoga he calls it integral yoga to integrate all of these back and so this uh, this system is maslow's pyramid so you know you talk about so many management systems that are we stay out from the west you talk about spiritual traditions coming meditation traditions coming in, the point is india never invested in doing its own r&d and i quit everything i had i could have been a, one of those big shots in india uh, had i continued on my trajectory because i was ahead of the game in the 80s and early 90s but i quit all that betting on the assumption that people will take all this seriously and i will bring this knowledge to them but other than writing books and talks the point is that people love all that but in terms of institutionalizing a movement to do this it has not worked uh, you know I, I, there is no shortage of places i can go give lectures here and there no shortage in india there lot lot of people love the tamasha love the action excitement provocation people are smart basically very smart but in terms of putting serious resources uh, you know a chinese friend told me that look had you been chinese guy done this based on chinese knowledge we, we would have by now created a huge institution for you so this is the flaw of the indian uh, indian public and the indian government that we have not invested enough in r&d and productization and corporatization based on our own knowledge systems so your question you know what is meditation is a phenomenal question i love it because it gives me a chance to give this historical background thank you i have a second question if you if i may uh, sure, sure. tell me 
the you, you know we have we have read your first book you know breaking into your forces you know i i come from uh, tamil nadu and kerala you know i have a dual root so your breaking into your forces begin from there you know that book begins from there and uh, so we yes, yes. we can be related uh, very much we relate to that you know the we relate to what you have written very much and in fact so i look forward to your second book as well and uh, in that context see we are we are among a group of students you know we are among a group of students who are young young and aspirational uh, you know in this context of uh, breaking india focus what is a individual's responsibility what's an individual responsibility how how an individual can deal with this either me or so you know my so you know colleagues or whatever younger students yeah. you know? no that's very good very very good i like i like all that uh, my new book which is just a few months away it, i i hope to turn it over to the publisher within 6 weeks and then they'll put it out soon uh it'll be out in the summer you know that will give you the new platform rather than the old breaking india platform which is more than a decade ago more than dozen years old uh, which is still very valid uh and still generating a lot of traction in india a lot of people have started rethinking and you know uh but i think this new one takes it to another level and it updates it with whatever is the latest issues that india is facing and i think people who are in management and business and all that will will wake up because i will i will critique a lot of the things that uh, and I, it'll be a bit of, it'll be a bombshell because a lot of the things i will talk about people don't want to hear but they should hear the young people should hear these things it is your life it's not going to be affecting me i am believe me i live a very comfortable life i'm a very happy guy in the in you know and i'm 71 years old nothing is going to go wrong in my life i'm not threatened but it is your life you guys are young people and you deserve better than the future you're headed for because you're you're underutilized i think that the indian brain is underutilized maybe as individuals we got some sundar pichai here and some guy there and we can say there are 100 great billionaires and all that okay but that 100 is not enough 1000 is not enough 10000 is not enough we got we got 140 crores so we have to think about us as a big family and when you think about us as a big family we're not we're not on the world stage on a per capita level we're not doing that great and we're not headed towards uh, uh, you know something that great so i i i i i am very happy that you 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 and many others are interested in these things and i would like to stay in touch with you there was some question in the chat box some of the students were asking about uh, what is the future research of 6g telecom <laughs> yeah future research i mean i'm glad to read recently that uh, reliance has tied up with somebody in finland um uh, you know the thing is that it's okay to tie up with somebody in finland and get some patents and some rights to it but why not create an ecosystem for indian technocrats you know the point is that uh, we are tying up with finland and there that will create a whole ecosystem of scientists engineers using reliance money to develop all this it's not just the final patent that is valuable but the whole ecosystem of engineers that you uh, you've nurtured uh, so you know while foreigners are coming and investing in indian brains and you making them work we should also uh, the percentage of money spent on r&d should go up is the point i'm making uh, it's a very pathetic uh, indian r&d is a very tiny portion of uh, indian gdp and the uh, corporate in terms of corporate uh, as a percentage allocated for r&d is very tiny lower than the us lower than the china even as a percentage not just absolute money 
but percentage. And I think unless we go beyond this business of Jugaad and license and quick, and you know, we have a huge population, a huge consumer base, so we can sell very easily uh, and and make a lot of money, and we don't need to innovate. We need to get out of that. We need to get out of that. So I have a question. Yeah, sure. sure. So as I can analyze by, uh, while uh, listening to your lecture, so I grasp that the war is not in you know, physical way like dropping bombs or anything like having a physical war uh, in between two countries or many states. Uh, but the war is between the war. Uh, the war is in the virtual world. It means the data is uh, the data of the particular country is using by the another country to make. Uh, certain amount of money or two uh... so maybe I'll, I'll i'll try to guess what the question is so basically i think as i understand it she's the question the direction is that rather than physical warfare there is now uh, intellectual virtual kind of warfare i think that that is true but that has physical consequences the the fact that the warfare is virtual and intellectual doesn't mean that physically my roti will not be affected in my house will not be affected my electricity will not be affected they will be affected because there there is a the 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 intellectual world and the digital world are controlling the physical world so the one who wins the digital war is going to also take over the physical war let me be very straight china is investing in a huge amount of digital weapons digital weapons on the indian border i mean robotic uh, soldiers and uh, these mini tanks mini small little tanks which are uh, driverless, there is no human being required, and they can mass produce these and throw a whole lot of them out there. So while it is all technologically driven, data driven, robotic driven, the point is it has physical consequences. They can take over a lot of territory. And so if there are no human soldiers until soldiers will come later after they finished off the, uh, the Indian uh, side, you know, in the beginning, the first wave may be all mechanized things. So these have physical consequences also. They're not just only in the virtual world. They are they're producing physical consequences also. And we have to admit that China is about 10 years ahead of India in these areas. It is a matter of concern. I think the national security people know it. Uh, Niti Aayog, I don't think they fully understood it because still they're making some mistakes in some of their policies. Uh, so this is, a, this is a matter that the Indian elite, the Indian bright people and thinkers like you have to get together and come to terms with this. I would like to ask a provocative question. Uh, sure, sure. It is my experience living in the United States that much of the engineering in Europe as well as America or this modern living comes out of the need of European conquest of North America in a hostile environment. Like I need uh, gas to warm up my home and electricity just to see things. Uh, same way car to go these places. So this modern living is actually a need-based kind of uh, finding problem solving in a hostile environment, not very different from New Jersey also. So uh, India's environment, uh, actually environment plays big role in the economy. So my, uh, as I reflected on this for a while, I think defense area, this gives uh, this new economy, huge advantage because they can see geographically people and so on. But moving out of the warfare into the trade aspects, 
that space i feel is a different landscape uh, than the warfare scape so what do you uh, the 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 arthashastra of non defense uh, how to like focus on that because food okay, clothing so, and no i understand that's a very good point uh, if uh, if we set defense aside which you know you have to understand that if somebody invades you then your arthashastra will not uh, be of use because that is what happened babur babur brought cannons to india uh, by land and in panipat and defeated and that was the beginning of warfare with cannons which indians didn't have cannon had existed in europe but we did not go out and bring it we did not think about bringing the best technology for ourselves so it is babur who brought it and therefore he created the mughal empire so you know and the portuguese came and brought uh, guns on ships uh, for the first time and so then they created their thing so you know if you look at uh, if you look at the role of technology and weapons the role of technology in new weapons and the role of weapons in creating empires and then those empires take over the whole economy also the whole arthashastra domain that is a domino effect we can't ignore but suppose we were to for for a moment set aside that i would say the following as far as the arthashastra of uh, the non defense economy is concerned the consumers in india have become very westernized the consumers want the western things so you cannot say that we can have a <coughs> we can have a non western style of production and supply because the consumers want those things they are they are looking at, you look at what are the consumption pattern what do the young kids want you ask him what are the things you want they want the same thing that the american young kids want so long as they want the latest fashion the latest this the latest that gadget here there whatever okay then you know it gives a gives power to the people who produce those things so the consumers in the modern society got the buying power and that translates into producers having the power because they are the ones who can supply and make money so we are back to the same capitalist materialistic model which is running society which is not easy to dismantle and maybe not even a good idea to try because you know the you'll have to start with a whole uh, generation of yogis Uh, who are saying i i get my um, joy and anand from inside i am not lo- looking for more consumption consumption is not a measure of my joy my joy is not uh, gdp growth not uh, how much more consumption i have because i'm finding ways of making myself happy and satisfied that do not require physical consumption that's a very different revolution that's a consciousness revolution and there is just no way we are anywhere close to it in fact we are galloping in the opposite direction the government policies are pushing us in the opposite direction so you see look at so many false policies the indian tradition was an oral tradition the indian tradition did not consider writing written as a measure of being educated because if you said written is the measure of educated lot of the rishis they had such great memories they would be considered illiterate and uneducated people but the government criteria in education is is literacy is the measure of education so you produce a lot of people who can read write but they can't think you know they can't think they don't have they don't really have the curiosity they're not uh, smart people you haven't developed the real brains you haven't developed their their ability to figure things out on their own but they know how to recite and chant how to uh, how to mug up 
how to mug up and answer questions. So the even the definition of what it means to be, have an educated population is all wrong. It is nothing to do with our tradition at all. So you start with ed, miseducating people with, with this kind of knowledge. Uh, a lot of it is irrelevant knowledge. I, in my next book, by the way, I'm doing a chapter on NCRT. I'm doing a chapter on NCRT. I don't want to give it away right now, but you will be shocked at the state of affairs in the NCRT uh, books uh, uh, I, I'll be talking about. Uh, so, you know, unless, the, unless you have a, 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 to start with a new generation from childhood and you raise them with different values and you educate them with differently. And then when they become consumers, they're consuming differently. And that, that creates a whole different economic uh, system and a whole different industrial complex, not based on the, the, the top-down consumer-driven uh, complex. Unless you can make such a sweeping change from the grassroots, you know, we, we, we can go on chanting and reciting that, uh, you know, Arthashastra uh, 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 and so on. But the fact is, at the end of the day, uh, the, the public in India, with the full support of the government, uh, is basically on a, running on a track with, with milestones of progress defined by Western criteria. Yeah, so let, maybe I'll close. And uh, in my closing, there'll be a small question as well, if you don't mind. <laughs> sure. You know, this has been a great uh, talk. Thank you very much. Thanks for giving your time. And uh, I'm sure my students also came back. I can see them on the screen also. So they did not miss out much. Uh, what happened in the last whole one and a half hour is of uh, such an importance that when uh, we talk about artificial intelligence, it has to be guided by moral values. And that's what that was coming out clearly here, right? I mean, the bigger question, therefore, is that when artificial intelligence is go, you know, going leap and bound ahead, how do you make sure that the dharmic attitudes of people are also catching up? We need to, and where do you start? I mean, is it high schools? Is it uh, colleges? And how do you how do you address this issue? Because otherwise, it's like a Frankenstein, right? So how do you address yeah. this issue? So you know, there are movements. Unfortunately, India does not have a single movement like uh, AI and ethics. AI, you know, there is a movement in the West. They made me a member of their board called AI and Faith, and they are people of different faiths, and they brought me in as a sort of Indian person. Uh, but it is controlled by uh, you know, Judeo-Christian uh, idea of faith. Then there is AI and ethics. A lot of organizations, they've also brought me in as a kind of uh, the Indian consultant advisor. I wanted, uh, uh, you know, I wanted help from uh, people in India, in industry, in business, in academics, and we ought to create one. One of the things you should do, uh, you guys can do, uh, smart people, is create a AI and ethics, AI and dharma, Indian group, and I'll be happy to mentor. I'll be happy to join. I, my foundation may even provide some funding for that. I mean, we have, we will invest in it. But I want some good, solid leadership. We must create this, uh, uh, this kind of a movement on uh, consciousness, artificial intelligence, and dharma. This sort of a thing, uh, because then there'll be a whole new philosophy of political economics. The whole political economy can be based on a different metaphysical foundation. And for that, we need movements. And I, all I can say is I'm available, but other people have to take the lead uh, because I, you know, I, I, I'm too stretched right now. But if people take the lead and take the ownership, I'll be happy to join. Thank you very much. Wonderful. 
Thank you very much. Really appreciate your time and uh, for all your great thoughts. Thank you very much. Thank you.